Okay, well, we'll go ahead and be finding our way to Acts chapter number 8. And while you're finding your place, we'll go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. And uh, we'll dive back into our study that we've been in. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. And we do thank you for the day that you've given us. And Lord, we thank you for your word that we have that we can uh, get into and study and to learn about you, Lord. And I just pray that you'd use it in our hearts and our lives. Lord, use it to draw us closer to you. Help us to... to uh, see the importance of prioritizing you, of seeking after you, Lord. We just ask you, Lord, that you would uh, be with our services today, be with those who are still on their way out, and watch over them, be with those who are working and traveling and different things that's not able to be here. And Lord, I just pray that you'd help us as a church to be a light and a witness in this community that you've put us in. And help me now as I teach, Lord, just guide and direct me in your word. Lord, help me to, to bring out the truths that you'd have me to. Lord, help me, Lord, to say that which is uh, accurate and uh, true, Lord, and we just thank you for being so good to us, and thank you for loving us, Lord, and all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Acts chapter number 8, and we've been in Acts for some time, and I've said all along that Acts is a transitional book. It is bridging the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is showing the uh, beginning of the church and how it bursts forth on the scenes. And uh, what we've been in the past couple weeks uh, is the believers uh, kind of stayed around Jerusalem. Jesus, before he left, said for them to go into uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And they were content to just stay in Jerusalem. They had faced some difficulties within, some uh, persecutions from without, different things like that. And they were navigating and learning how to deal with those kind of things. But they were still just kind of setting in Jerusalem. And so uh, persecution was ramped up with the stoning of Stephen. And they found out that uh, uh, they weren't necessarily protected from, uh, from the persecutions that was arising. Uh, they would hope that the Lord would cause them to be victorious, that the church would prevail, that they would... Uh, in a way, gain uh, dominance, acceptance in the area there. And with the growth that they were seeing happening, they probably just thought that it was going to quickly kind of just take over and everyone was going to fall in line. And they found out that wasn't the case. And they found out that although the Lord could deliver them, it wasn't always his will to deliver them. And so Stephen was dead. The people were afraid. And they started to uh, disperse out of Jerusalem. And they went into all the regions surrounding there. And as they were going, though they were afraid, though they were being persecuted, they were still sharing the gospel as they went. That the, the truth of God's word, the truth of salvation, was something that they couldn't stay silent about, even in the face of persecution. And so they came to new places, and probably some of the first questions that they were getting as they were uh, traveling is, what are you doing here? And I mean, that's something that we heard a lot whenever we moved to Ireland. We still hear it a lot yeah. is, OK, what are you doing here? And that would have given them an opportunity to say, well, we're fleeing the persecution that we're facing because we're followers of Jesus. We are being persecuted by our own people in our own land. And so we are leaving Jerusalem. We're going into Samaria, to Judea and even into the regions of the Gentiles. And as they were telling about why they were being persecuted, that would also lead them to, uh, to tell about uh, Jesus, tell about what they believed. And anyway, 
that was opening up the door for them to, to share the gospel, for them to spread the gospel. And as they were spreading abroad, they were seeing many people getting saved. And uh, last week we saw that Stephen uh, went into, the, uh, into a village in the region of Samaria. We talked about who the Samaritans were, why they were outcasts, why they were uh, disliked by the Jews, and why the Jews were hesitant to go amongst them. But the Lord in his... Uh, did I say Stephen a minute ago? Yeah. I'm, I'm bad about doing that. The Lord in his providence allowed Philip... There you go. Stephen's dead. Okay. But he allowed Philip to go into the regions of Samaria, and uh, as he went there, preaching the gospel, and it says that he was showing signs and wonders, that people believed on the things that he was preaching, the things that he was teaching, believed the gospel. And uh, we pointed out last week in verse 12, they believed the things concerning the kingdom of God, the preaching, and then Simon was uh, believing and was kind of fascinated by the miracles, the signs and wonders. He liked the, the evidence of power and things like that. And we talked about that a good bit last week with uh, Simon. We debated on whether or not he was saved, and we came to the conclusion we can't know for sure. We can have opinions. We can uh, uh, look into it and try to figure out what we think about it. But in the grand scheme of things, it's something we're not going to know this side of heaven. And there are several things throughout Scripture that's that way that we can't, we can't be dogmatic where Scripture is not clear. And we have to give deference in those areas and things and realize that people are going to have differences of opinions, and that's okay. Uh, there are some things that I believe the Lord intentionally left vague. And sometimes it's for us to think them through. Sometimes it's to provoke thought, for us to dig a little bit deeper and compare Scripture with Scripture and things. And it's okay for us to arrive at our own conclusions, our own opinions on those things. But there's going to be differences, Right. And so as we concluded last week, I told you there was uh, one more thing I wanted to cover and we didn't have time for. So that's where we want to begin today. And so we're in Acts chapter number 8. And we're going to look at just a couple verses there uh, in the middle of the passage we were in last week. And it says in verse number 14, Acts 8 verse 14, Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost, for as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. And so where I want to begin at with our, our study today, our discussion today, is this thing about the delay in receiving the Holy Ghost. And we find as we look through Scripture that this isn't the normal way of things happening. We can go to the book of Romans in Romans chapter 8, and it tells us that all believers uh, are, uh, are essentially the temple of God. All believers uh, have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, and if the Holy Spirit doesn't dwell in them, then they are none of His. And so that is a mark of salvation that the Holy Spirit enters into us and takes up abode within us at the moment of salvation. But that's not what happened in Acts chapter number 8. That's not what happened whenever uh, Philip was preaching to the Samaritan believers. There was a delay. The apostles came down and laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit, right? And I've said all along, and I've said already in the introduction, that Acts is a transitional book. There is a transition taking place. 
And so not everything that we find in Acts is going to be the normative way of things happening. So my first question for us today is why was there a delay? Um, I think it's to, to demonstrate to the Jewish believers that the Samaritans were accepted as into the family of God. Very much so, yes. What's mother voice? Other reasons. Because I don't believe there is only one. So it's multiple, multiple choice, multiple answers here. You like his? <laughs> Everybody just like, you know. Uh, then also, there's, there's also the other, uh, this is from the camera, Pentecostals would say it's to, to um, it's um, demonstrating that you need to lay on the, the spirit. This, there is an initial filling of the spirit, but there's a subsequent filling of the Holy Spirit after conversion, so that would be good. Okay. I'm just going to throw it out. He loves throwing hands around. I'm just going to throw it out. It's going to happen again. What is it now? I didn't catch what you said. He loves to stir the pot. Oh, me too. But, but it's good for us to discuss and say, well, they have that They have that point of view. Well, what about it? Is it valid, yeah. right? Yeah. And so, as I said, it's not normative through Scripture for them to have to lay hands on every time. And it's not the normal practice. We find it happening a couple times. But it's not good, uh, uh, not good theology, I guess, to build our doctrines on the one or two exceptions rather than the rule. And so we find that on the day of Pentecost, whenever the Holy Spirit came down, no one was laying hands on anybody, right? Well, another thing too, just like in saying that about the Pentecostals, is if that's not a transitional thing, mm-hmm. you don't see it later on. What about the people on the cross that believe? Okay. He didn't get the hands laid on, did he not? You know? Well, maybe he didn't live long enough to get the Holy Spirit, but he was still <laughs> saved, right? I'm just saying, that's a good thought, because you don't think of that later on. You just see it here. Yeah. Yeah. As you, like you're saying, it's transitioning and changing. Okay. Well, going to the Pentecostal belief, they believe that the Holy Spirit takes up residence at salvation, right? But they believe that there is a such thing as subsequent fillings of the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit. And so it's almost, they bring in like the, the Old Testament ministry of the Holy Spirit where like with Samson, the Holy Spirit would come upon him, enable yeah. him to do certain things, and then it's like he left again, right. right? And there's different times in the Old Testament where you see the Holy Spirit coming and going. But we know that the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit had a different ministry. The Lord would send him for a time to do a purpose, and then he would leave, right? Yeah. Even David, he, he prayed that the Lord would not uh, take his Holy Spirit from him. Mm-hmm. In the Old Testament, and there are some that would uh, try to use verses like that with David as the idea that you could lose your salvation, right? But here's the thing. It was a different time. This is where whenever we're studying the Bible, we have to uh, use the context of it. And so in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come and would empower and he would leave. We seem, It seems like uh, the Holy Spirit almost uh, stayed with David a little bit more than some of the others, right? But there was a different ministry back then. But we find in the New Testament that it says that the Holy Spirit, Jesus told the the disciples before he left, I'm going to send a comforter. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to make his abode with you. And he's going to stay with you. He's going to empower you. And he says that it's imperative that I leave so that he can come because he's going to be able to not just be with the group of the 12 in a desert in Galilee, 
or in Samaria or wherever, but instead he would be able to be with all believers all the time, right? right? And he would not be bound by those limitations. And as we see, just like the passage, I'll go ahead and turn over to Acts 8, or not Acts 8, Romans 8. Too many things in my Bible falling out. Okay, Acts 8, or Romans 8, uh, verse number 9. It says, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if any, or excuse me, and if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. And we go ahead and go down to verse 15. It says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, uh, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also may be also glorified together. And so in that passage, it makes it clear that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And now where the Pentecostals get messed up with these subsequent fillings where the Bible tells us to be filled with the Spirit, so we're indwelt, but the filling of the Spirit uh, essentially means that we're allowing the Spirit to have control. Okay, the passage says, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And so the comparison there, a lot of people use that in talking about alcohol, right? Mm -hmm. But the comparison that's being made is just as uh, drunkenness changes your personality, it changes your uh, state of mind, your actions, it takes away your inhibitions, it takes control of you, right? right? And so just as we allow alcohol, or we shouldn't, but anyway, just as a drunken man allows alcohol to take over and to transform him that we need to allow the Holy Spirit to take over and transform us. And just as the drunk has to keep returning to the bottle to continue to be inflamed, to be filled with alcohol, we need to continue to abide in the Spirit so that it can continue to have control and continue to work its work in our lives. And so we can grieve the Spirit. We can uh, quench the Spirit. And that's whenever we are saying, My will, not thine, be done. When we're doing what we want to do and we can kind of cause the Holy Spirit to shrink back in our lives, he still indwells our heart, but he's not in control. We are. We've assumed the pilot seat, right? But whenever we're filled with the Spirit, we're allowing the Spirit to take control. We're allowing the Word of God to have reign in our lives, and we are cooperating with the Spirit, allowing him to do what he wills in our lives, right? And that's the, the truth about the filling of the Spirit and it doesn't mean that, okay, I'm going to lay hands on you and you're going to speak in tongues or roll around on the floor. You're going to do all these odd things. Those aren't the signs of the Spirit. But the Spirit-filled life is a God-honoring life. It is a Christ-honoring life. It is a life that is governed by the Word of God rather than by our own desires and by this world. And so that's where they go a little bit wonky in this. And it's because they they isolate just a few passages like this, which is transitional, right? And so what we find, uh, I may have got a little off track of where I started out there. I mentioned in the very beginning there uh, that um, on the day of Pentecost, 
the Holy Spirit came down, right? And no one was laying hands on. It was not delayed. It was immediately whenever they believed, they received the Holy Spirit, right? We find over in a couple more chapters, in chapter number 10, whenever Peter goes to Cornelius, to the house of Cornelius, the Roman, right? That whenever they believe, immediately they receive the Holy Spirit and signs and wonders of the Holy Spirit are worked in their lives immediately, just as it happened on the day of Pentecost. And whenever Peter goes back to give answer for himself, because they say, how dare you go to the unclean Gentiles? And Peter says, the Lord guided me there, and the Lord blessed it. And whenever I preached, they believed, and they received the Holy Spirit just like we did. It was exactly the same. There was no difference, right? And so what we're seeing from these three times, the time here with the Samaritans, the time with Cornelius, and the time on the day of Pentecost is that God is trying to tell them something. God is signifying something. He's showing something, right? But going back to what we're looking at here in Acts 8, it's slightly different because there is the delay with Pentecost and with Cornelius, no delay. But in both cases with Pentecost and Cornelius, who is the one speaking? Peter, an apostle, right? But in Acts chapter number 8, who's the one speaking? Okay, we have Philip. Now, before your minds start going, wandering off here, I'm not saying that Peter's the Pope. Okay? But it was the apostles who were preaching and teaching and speaking, right? And so what happens in Samaria if Philip the deacon, the evangelist, what happens if he comes, preaches, they receive the Holy Spirit, and there is no tie to the apostles, no tie to the church at large that's going on, and they just become uh, this uh, segregated group of believers. What's going to happen there? <laughs> You're very right. A lot of weird things is going to happen. There you go. Okay. And so with them being Samaritans, there's already a dislike between them and the Jews. There's already that fight, even with religion, saying, okay, we believe you worship this way. The Jews believe you worship this way. And so there's going to be two different lines that's going to exist. And most importantly, the Samaritans are not going to accept the teachings of the Jewish apostles. They're going to reject the scriptures. They're not going to have the word of God. They're not going to have that apostolic authority in the beginning and they are not going to associate with the church at large because at that time, most of the church was Jewish, right? And so there's going to be this division that starts from the very beginning, and there's going to be this rejection of Scripture, and it is quickly going to go in error, right? Just like the Samaritan beliefs, because they were founded upon uh, a corrupted religion to begin with, right? And so this is going to be continued onward. Now, something else that was important about this 
is if the Samaritans just believed Philip, believed Christ, got saved, and was separate from the Jews, it goes the other direction as well. The Jews are never going to accept the Samaritans. Right? And the church is going to continue to be completely Jewish in nature. And they're going to still continue to separate, to segregate from the Samaritans. So what God is doing here through his uh, superior knowledge and wisdom here is taking away this division and he is making for himself one church, right? And so as this is happening, uh, it's a sign to the Jews that God is accepting the Samaritans on equal ground with them, that there is no division, there is no difference between the Jews and the Samaritans. And it's bridging the gap between the Jews and the Gentiles as well, because as I said last week, the Jews, or excuse me, the Samaritans are half Jew, half Gentile, right? And so he's bridging this gap, and the uh, the Jews are seeing the Samaritans are equal to the Jewish Christians. It was assigned to the Samaritans that, as I said, without this, there'd be a separate Samaritan church. Uh, they would have rejected the Jewish scriptures. They would have rejected the apostolic authority, and really they would have been... Uh, a church without a foundation, right? Because we know that the apostles are the foundation. Christ is the cornerstone. The apostles is the foundation, right? And they would have been a church without a foundation. Um, it was a sign to the church that there is no Jerusalem mother church. That's an important one because it wasn't the church that instituted this. It wasn't the Jerusalem church or Jerusalem council that said, okay, we need to go out and evangelize. We need to go out and send these missionaries out here. It was just believers that were going forth, preaching the gospel as they went. People were being saved with or without their approval, right? I mean, the, the Jerusalem church approval. And so the gospel was going forth without them. People were getting saved without them. It was assigned to the apostles that they had a work bigger than Jerusalem. Because we, we read last week that uh, everyone was scattered abroad except the apostles. And this would have jarred them a little bit and said, hey, God is moving and we're not there. God's got a plan bigger than what we had. And it would have jarred them a little bit to get out of their comfort zone, out of their complacency and expand their horizons. And this is what was going on. Um. Something else that we can take from this, and I need to be moving on, is whenever they heard about it, verse 14, it says that when the, the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John. Now, this is just a, a slight bone to pick, I guess, because of where we're at. But with us being here in Ireland, the prevailing idea is that of Catholicism, right? Mm -hmm. And they believe that Peter was the first pope, mm -hmm. that he was the rock upon whom they built the church, right? Mm -hmm. But what do we find going on here? Was Peter the one who was the pope that was in charge and was uh, running the show? John was with him, and they were sent Peter wasn't sending. If Peter was the first pope, he'd be sitting up there on high and telling everybody else what to do. He would be the one revealing all these things to the people. And unfortunately, here at the time, the apostles are kind of on the tail end of things. God is doing something. The Lord said that 
I will build my church, right? And the Lord is building his church with or without the apostles. He's getting ahead of them. And then whenever they catch wind of whatever they hear, then Peter and John equal are sent to Samaria. And so they are sent by the other apostles, right? And so we see this kind of commingling here, this they're a delegation that's sent out, and they're just I kind of imagine the apostles get their heads together and say, Can you believe it? The Samaritans are getting saved. We need to do something about this. And they delegate Peter and John and said, Hey, you guys seem to have it together. You guys go. Right? And we find that Peter and John were often paired up because the one complimented the other back and forth, okay? Because Peter was very uh, boisterous. He was uh, emotional. He was doing. He was outspoken, but he was the one that jumped in and thought later, right? But John, on the other hand, was the one who was much more steady, much more thorough, much more thoughtful, right? Uh, just as an example, whenever they came to the tomb, it was Peter and John, right? And you see an example here. John gets to the tomb. He waits outside. He stoops down, looks in, kind of takes inventory, thinks things through what's going on. What does Peter do? He just dives right in. Doesn't even think, doesn't even, you know, put too much mind to it. He just breezes past John and right in. Now, just as a funny side note, I find it humorous how many times that John relates that he beat Peter to the tomb. <laughs> you start reading through the Gospel of John over and over. It, John's saying, I got there first. I beat Peter. I arrived before Peter did, right? There's at least three or four times that John reiterates and says, yeah, I beat him there. <laughs> but anyway, that's a side note. But we see this going on, and it seems like they are a good partnership. They work well together because they take each other's edges off, Okay. And so the, the disciples or the apostles of the whole says, we're going to send Peter and John down there to see what's going on. And they lay their hands on them. They receive the Holy Ghost and they take word back to the apostles and say, you're not going to believe this. Right. And so it was a teaching thing for all of them. And it was to bring about unity. It was bring about expansion. It was to do great things for the believers. Right. And God orchestrated it all. Now, once again, I've got to go back and say it wasn't the norm. And from now, or for now, the Holy Spirit permanently indwells the believer at salvation. Okay? And so at this transition, there are some different things going on because God was still leading, guiding, instructing his apostles. He was getting the church grounded. He was causing it to be united. He was doing so many great things here. And he was laying the groundwork for all of these uh, continuing believers to accept the teachings of the apostles, to accept the ministry of the apostles, to uh, to ex accept the scriptures that they were going to pen. And we find that going on as the New Testament unfolds that God's plan worked out, right? And so anything else to add on that? We, we need to go ahead and move on. Okay, so... In light of all that, we're going to go ahead and look at, starting with verse number 26, we're still looking at Philip. Philip is bridging a gap for us here. He is pushing the door open 
to the Samaritans, and now he's going to push the door open to the uh, to the Gentiles. And in a way, he's kind of dragging the apostles, kicking and screaming all along the way. Okay, and so as we come to verse number twenty-six, I'll go ahead and read the the rest of the chapter here, and then I just kind of want to bring out a few things from this passage, and we'll see how far we get. It says, "And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south unto the uh, way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority, under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, and had come up to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and setting in his chariot, read Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit saith unto him, Philip, go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to meet to him, and heard him read the prophet Isaiah, and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I, except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a, a lamb dumb before his shear, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down, excuse me, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. And so as we look at this passage, it's a familiar, familiar enough passage, right? Mm -hmm. We're familiar with the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. But I want to bring out a few things that are interesting from this passage. Uh, the first thing that I see in this is what was going on in Philip's life and ministry at the beginning of this. Think about the context of what was going on at this time. He was in Samaria, right? Lots of people were getting saved. The apostles had come down, laid their hands on the people. They had received the Holy Spirit. And I don't believe the apostles had to come back and lay their hands on them every time someone new got saved, by the way. Just getting back onto our last subject, right? And so Philip was up there preaching the gospel, seeing people saved, discipling believers. Things were going great. It was somewhat of a revival going on, right? And in the midst of all that, the angel of the Lord comes to Philip and makes an odd request or gives an odd command. He tells him, leave this place, this city where there's lots of people, there's lots of things going on, much happening, and I want you to go down to Gaza, which is desert. Now, we know the rest of the story. We know what happens from there. But what would this have sounded like to Philip? Wouldn't this have seemed kind of foolish to Philip? 
Lord, look what a great work I'm doing. Look at how many people are coming and assembling. Look at how many people are listening. Look at how many people I'm discipling. And you want me to leave all of this to go down to the middle of the desert and preach to the tumbleweeds? Right? Wouldn't that have seemed foolish? But we find that Philip was at the place where he trusted God. Right? We found that the qualifications whenever he became a deacon was that he was a man that was full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, someone who trusted and followed after God, right? And so his heart was receptive. His spirit was willing, right? And he says, okay, Lord, I'm going to go wherever you lead. I'm going to do whatever you want me to do, even if it doesn't make sense, even if I can't see how it works. I'm still going to trust you, Lord. And so he has this faith. He has this humility. He has this dependence that's going on. And I believe that's one of the main reasons, or several of the main reasons, okay, why the, the Lord was using Philip in the way that he was. He was willing. I don't know that even maybe some of the apostles were to this place yet, right? And so he was willing to leave all that was going on and obey the Lord and go down to a barren desert where the most he could hope for was caravans of traders and camels and stuff, right? And so he's probably just walking along a lot of time by himself. I don't know. He may have had an entourage with him. He may have had a few people that went. He may have told some of the Samaritans, right? Uh, the Lord just told me that I'm to go down to the middle of Gaza and they're scratching their head saying, well, that's crazy. Why would you do that? I don't know, but God told me to, so I'm going to trust him. I'm going to believe him. I'm going to do what he said. And so some of them might have said, okay, let's see what this is all about. Come on, let's follow Philip. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say it's silent on that. So I use my imagination to fill in some of the, the gaps in between, and I'll find out if I'm right about it one of these days when I get to heaven. I still have this idea that one of these days we're going to be able to be in heaven and we're going to be able to like see all of these events you know, like recorded and watch it play out on the big screen. Right? Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. You go back and say, okay, I want to see how the Red Sea was. And you go to the little library and you pull out the disc, you stick it in the DVD player and watch it, right? That'd be cool. Now, Heaven's probably got better technology than this, but you know. But anyway, it'd be cool to be able to watch. So we'll have to wait and see one of these days. But with all of this going on, Philip goes and just as... I guess maybe a little bit of a side note as I'm thinking through this. When Philip comes to the eunuch, whenever he comes to the eunuch, uh, it, there's no indicator there's anybody with him because he comes up beside of the guy and he hears him reading and he says, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he says, How can I except some man should guide me? And he invites Philip, not Philip and his posse, right? right. He invites Philip to come up and sit beside of him. So that might have answered my question a little bit myself, right? Just thinking through it. But anyway, you're seeing it in real time. You're seeing it as it's unfolding in my head. Um, so anyway, as we're, as we're looking at all of this, he was willing to leave a fruitful place to go to a place that was barren and just go in obedience to God. And it's a challenge to us because we have a hard time obeying. We want to see the results. We want to have some assurance of what the next step's going to be. We want to know what God's up to because, honestly, we don't trust him. Isn't that what that means? 
Okay. God says, I want you to do this. Okay, God, but let me know how that's going to work out first, because I don't know if I can trust your plan for me. Let me evaluate it. Let me see if it meets my approval. And then I'll decide whether or not I'm going to obey. Then that puts you on the throne and it puts God as your servant. Right. That's what that does. And we don't like to think of it that way, but that's honestly what it is. Whenever we don't trust God, we're elevating ourselves. We trust our own selves, our own wisdom, our own abilities over what we trust God's. And so Philip didn't do that. He obeyed. And then whenever he did obey, we see the results of his obedience. Okay? The results come after obedience, not before. They're revealed after obedience, not before. Okay? You obey, and then God works. You obey, and then God unfolds. You obey, and then you see what God's doing. God doesn't show you ahead of time. And so whenever he comes down, he's just walking through the middle of the desert all by himself, talking to God, saying, okay, God, here I am. I I obeyed you. I listened. I did what you told me to do. Show me. Guide me. What is it you have me here for? Right? Mm -hmm. And about that time, there's a procession here, a royal procession that enters his view. And he says, oh, there are people in the desert. Okay. Well, at least we've got that going for us. And he sees that this caravan... As I said, it's a royal caravan. There's uh, going to be probably lots of servants. There's going to be probably gold, all these things, because this is the royal treasurer for the queen of Ethiopia. And so as he's looking at all of this, he's just like, okay, I don't know if they're going to be receptive to me or not, but the Lord impresses on his heart. The Holy Spirit guides him, speaks to him, and says, go and join yourself to his chariot. And the Lord just guiding him step by step. You obey in this, God reveals the next step, right? And so God says, join yourself to his chariot. And as soon as he gets his marching orders, if you will, it says that he runs. Quick to obedience, right? He runs and he's going along beside the chariot. He's probably caught several people's attention, but not the Ethiopians yet. Because the Ethiopian is there reading the Isaiah scroll. Okay, And apparently he's reading it out loud or having it read to him, but it seems like he's reading it out loud. And Philip hears, and I imagine a smile came on his face. Right? Because could you imagine you meet a random camel train, Ethiopians nonetheless, they're not Jews, they don't know God, and he's reading the scriptures. And not only is he reading the scriptures, he's reading one of the most profound places in the Old Testament that tell about Jesus, Isaiah 53. And it's talking about him being as a lamb, dumb before his shears and not opening his mouth. All of these things going on. And as I said, I figure there's a smile that comes across his face and he's saying, God knows what he's doing. God ordained all this. God fixed all these things in place. And so he calls out to the man. He's like, okay, I don't, I don't need any further prodding. I understand what's going on now. And he calls out to the man. He says, do you understand what you're reading? And the guy's response is, how can I except some man should guide me? Now, going back a little bit and looking at the Ethiopian uh, rather than Philip, what was the Ethiopian doing? Well, it says that he went up to Jerusalem to worship. Now, the God of the Hebrews was not the God of the Ethiopians. The Ethiopians would have been pagan. They would have had all their false deities, all these different things. 
But somewhere along the lines, this man of Ethiopia, a man of power, a man of position, had heard about the God of Israel, had understood about all the evidences, all the proofs, all the great things that God had done, and he compared it to his paganism, and he says, all this stuff that I've been taught, all this stuff around me, it's false. But there's something about their God. And so he didn't come all the way to being a proselyte. He didn't fully convert to Judaism, but he's coming up and he's worshiping at the temple. He has the means that he's able to purchase uh, copies of the scriptures, which, by the way, before typing and printing and all those kind of things, the scriptures were very precious. They were expensive. They had to be hand copied, but this man had the means to do it. So he came up to Jerusalem. He worshiped at the temple, but he saw all of the... uh, all of the corruption taking place in Jerusalem. You know, all of the all of the hypocrisy within their religion, all of the ways that the religious leaders had used it for power and for money and all these different things. And so he's conflicted in his mind, but he buys the scriptures, he's searching them out, and he says, I know the word of God holds truth. I know the God of the Jews is the true God. I'm just trying to figure all of these things out. And so he's studying. He's digging through scriptures. He's trying to understand, and he's confused, right? He's trying to put together the prophecies, the scriptures. He's trying to understand this God that he's not familiar with, right? Because that's not where he was raised at. And he's trying to put together all the pieces. And as he's doing that, there's a bit of confusion that's going on. And it's just about that time whenever he's probably getting frustrated. He's probably getting upset. He's getting all confused about these things. And suddenly in the middle of the desert, there's a man that appears out of nowhere. Right? This would be the perspective of the Ethiopian. He's like, I'm just going. My caravan's going through the middle of the desert. And all of a sudden in the middle of the desert, where you don't expect to see people just walking along, there's this man. And he comes up beside of my chariot and he asks me if I understand what I'm reading right whenever I'm frustrated, right when I'm confused, I don't know what's going on. And the Ethiopian responds, I need someone to guide me. Come on up and join me. And Philip jumps in the chariot beside of him, almost as a heavenly vision, almost as a heavenly messenger here, and sets down beside this man and starts at Isaiah 53 and starts preaching to him, Jesus. And they're going along, and Philip is going through, and he's telling about this lamb that was dumb before he shears and didn't open his mouth. About this one who had given his life for the sins of mankind to redeem his people. And as he's telling him these things, all the scriptures that the Ethiopian had been reading, all the different things that he had heard, all of the, the different truths of the scripture are being connected and put together and the Ethiopian believes, okay? Ethiopian believes. And as they're going about, they're going through more desert regions, and they happen upon water. And he says, see, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? So we'll get into the question here in a minute of baptism. Okay, another, another interesting topic, right? And so anyway... Philip's response to the Ethiopian, whenever he says, what doth hinder me to be baptized? He says, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. 
And so we have a great truth that's introduced to us here that goes against really much of the teachings of religion today. This clarifies it for me completely because it tells us here that belief precedes baptism. He says you have to first believe, you have to first be born again, you have to first be saved before you are baptized. And so he says, I, I, can't, uh, I can't baptize you. I can't allow you to be baptized before you're saved. So that completely does away with infant baptism, right? Because how can a baby believe? And so he says, you can't be baptized until you believe. And we know that belief is the gateway, is the doorway to salvation. Right? They believed then they were baptized. That's all the way through Scripture from beginning to end, really, that baptism is after salvation. Okay? And so it separates the two of them. Baptism doesn't save. Baptism is because you're saved. And so I want to go back just a little bit and look at what baptism is. Okay? Why are we baptized? What is baptism about? Why did this man desire to be baptized? We don't see any. Uh, we don't see anywhere that's indicating that Philip is instructing him to be baptized, even right. So something interesting to me, as you come into the New Testament, even as John the Baptist goes and is baptizing, there is no instruction, there is no introduction to baptism because it seems as if baptism was already something that was known to the Jewish people and known to the people of that region, right? Y'all ever think of this? There's no introduction to it. So it was a practice that was already in place that people understood the significance of, the meaning of, right? And so John the Baptist came in the wilderness preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Multitudes gathered to him whenever they believed the things that he was saying whenever they were following his teachings and they submitted to the rite of baptism. They had an understanding of it. It wasn't them coming to him and him saying, okay, guys, if you believe, come here. I want to dunk you underwater. Well, why are you going to do that? This doesn't make sense. Why are we being dunked? We don't find that going on, do we? There was already an understanding of what baptism was for. We can go back through the Old Testament and we find that there is a continual theme, a thread that goes through Scripture uh, of associating water with cleansing, right? Before the priest could uh, approach the altar, they had to first go through the brazen laver. They had to first wash before they could uh, approach to God, right? And so we see that as somewhat of a baptism, somewhat of a cleansing. There was plenty of ceremonial cleansings in the law and in the Old Testament. You follow the intertestamental period between uh, Malachi and Matthew, and you look into Jewish history, you find that there were uh, ritual cleansings that they had instituted as well, uh, where they would have not just the priests being washed, but people would go through these washing, these cleansing ceremonies, okay? Mm -hmm. Ritual cleansing and whatnot. And so it was for their desire to be cleansed. It was an, uh, admitting that they were sinful and uh, admitting that uh, God was holy, and they were desiring that cleansing to put them right with God. So whenever John the Baptist came on the scene saying, repent, and baptizing, 
They said, okay, we've been going the wrong direction. We're changing our direction as Jews. We've not been preparing for the Messiah. Now we believe his kingdom is at hand. The Messiah is coming. We need to get ready for him. And so we are going to repent, change direction, right? And we are going to be baptized to signify what we are doing, that we are changing, that we are wanting to be cleansed and ready and prepared, right? But to, to bring it even more into focus, make it even more clear, the Jews for a long time also had a ritual whenever anyone would become a proselyte, anyone would convert from another religion and they would become a Jew, guess what they had to do? They had to be baptized. And so it was signifying away with the old and in with the new, right? I'm turning from this previous life and I am walking anew, okay? And so for the Jews, this would have been a little bit odd for them to accept John's baptism because they said, wait a minute, we're Jews. We don't need to turn from this old life and turn to a new life. We don't need this testimony to everyone around us that we believe and that we are following because we're already Jews. But whenever John was preaching, he says, the Jewish faith has went awry. It has went off track. You need to turn from your dead works and turn toward faith in the Messiah that has been promised that would come. And they believed they were baptized. Just as they had seen the Gentiles have to do for generations whenever they were uh, turning from their pagan religions and turning to the God of the Hebrews, they would have to be baptized as a testimony to the believers, to the Jews, whenever they entered into Judaism. And so we see a whole... Uh, history behind all this. And so whenever Jesus came, he submitted himself to baptism, not because he needed to wash his sins away, as they try to say, but because he is testifying of the truth of the things that they are believing. Okay? He is identifying with John, with what John's teaching. He is identifying with all these other believers in the kingdom that he is getting ready to preside over. Okay? And so then after he dies... He's buried. He raises again. It brings a new significance to baptism because whenever we believe spiritually, we die, okay? We are buried with Christ and we are raised in newness of life with him, spiritually speaking, okay? And all of this happens at the moment of belief. Whenever we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we are born again. We are buried with him, and we are raised in newness of life, but that's something that is not visible. There's no outward appearance of that, right? And so we find that there is the commandment in Scripture to believe and be baptized, right? We see there's the practice in Scripture. All they who believed were baptized. There was added to the church daily, such as should be saved. We find that happening in Scripture, right? So what is it telling us? You believe, and this Ethiopian eunuch had enough understanding, I guess, of what was going on. He says, I want to testify, I want to identify with this belief. He says, I have believed upon Jesus, I am having this change in my life, I am converting, I am becoming a Christian, right? And so he wanted a means to testify to all those that was with him. 
And so he said, here is water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? He says, I want to be identified with this new belief. I want to die to the old life and be brought into this new life. And Philip's only requirement, he says, if you believe with all your heart, thou mayest. And he says, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So what does all that mean? You know, there's plenty of people that say, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. But what did Philip just tell him? What did he just preach? What did he just testify of? He said, Jesus is the one who is the Son of God, is God in flesh, that came and lived a perfect, sinless, and holy life, and that he died as a substitute, as a sacrifice, to pay the penalty for your sins. He was buried, and on the third day, he rose again victorious, proving that the payment was accepted and that he truly is God in flesh. And the eunuch said, I believe that guy. Right? And so this comes back to what we were talking about last week with uh, Simon. Yeah, Simon. Says that he believed, right? But what did he believe? And if you go out and interview people on the street, who is Jesus? What do you believe about him? And you're going to find a multitude of different answers. And so what is important about the belief is who it's in. Are we believing in the God of the Bible? Are we believing in the Jesus that scriptures teach? Are we believing in some uh, man-made construct of who Jesus is? If you believe in Jesus as a historical figure, okay, that's not going to save you. If you believe in him as a good teacher and a miracle worker, that's not going to save you. If you believe that he died and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day, that's still not going to save you until you believe that he died, was buried, and rose the third day for you, for your sins, to bring you forgiveness and pardon, to reconcile you with God. Whenever you believe that Jesus, whenever you make it personal, whenever you see that you were in need of salvation, that you were a sinner, and he died on your behalf, that is the belief that saves. So if you believe in anything short of that, well, congratulations, the devils believe and tremble, right? But it takes belief in him as your Savior, as the Son of God that died on your behalf, the one that's capable of forgiving your sins and saving your soul, when you believe that Jesus, then there's salvation. And so whenever Philip has got done telling him who Jesus is, why he came, what he did, and he says, I believe wholeheartedly. Philip says, stop the chariot. That's all it takes. It's not, okay, let's enter into a 10-week class and discipleship training, not pass the test, go through and answer all the questions right, get your theology grounded and, and all of these things figured out. It's not, okay, before you do that, then you have to know all of these other things. All he has to do is believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God sent to save his soul. And that was enough for him to be baptized. And so he took him, and it says they went both of them down into the water. You don't have to go down into the water to be sprinkled, by the way. Right? They went down into the water because to be baptized is illustrating someone dying, being buried, and raised again. It is a picture. It's an object lesson. It's a testimony. Okay? 
I don't know of anyone that's ever died and they just threw a little bit of dirt on them and called them buried. Sprinkle a little bit of dirt, pour a little bit. Okay, good enough. Vultures will take care of it from here, right? No, that's not the way it works. And so it symbolized being buried. And so they went down into the water. He plunged him under the water. He raised him up out of the water and then Philip disappeared. And so could you imagine the story the Ethiopian had whenever he got back to Ethiopia? He said, I was riding through the middle of the desert. I was reading the scriptures. I couldn't understand them. All of a sudden, this guy appeared. He explained it to me. He drew all the all the uh, passages together. He gave me understanding of the scripture. I believed it. I believe in this Jesus. He saved me. I wanted to be baptized. He took me down <laughs> to the water. He baptized me. Then he disappeared. He's an angel. Right? And they're like, man, you were out in the desert sun too long. Does your chariot not have like a little thing over top of it? Showed you from the sun what's going on? But this is the thing. He went down and he said, God sent to me at just the right time, just the right person, while I was reading just the right passage to explain just what I needed to hear. And whenever I believed, it just so happened we were going by water and the Holy Spirit impressed on my heart that I needed to be baptized. And I sought to be baptized. I was baptized. And here I am now, right? And something I love about this story is how Philip was just sensitive to the Spirit, obedient to God, and God arranged everything. Could you imagine if God would have gave Philip the task and says, I want you to go find the Ethiopian in the desert, preach a gospel to him. And that was it. And so he's there in Samaria and just scratching his head and saying, Gaza's a big place. Where do I go? How do I find him? But God led him step by step. And there's all these things that we would say that it just so happened. It just so happened he found himself on the right road. It just so happened that he was there at the right time to meet the chariot. It just so happened that the Ethiopian was reading the scriptures and it just so happened that he was at this place in the scriptures that explains Jesus so perfectly. It just so happened that he was willing to accommodate Philip and to listen to him. Could Philip have done any of this on his own? There's no way. But God orchestrated it all. And this shows us how important it is for us in our day-to-day -day life and whenever we try to do anything for the Lord, especially that we are in tune with God and we are seeking him first. If we're seeking him first, if we are allowing the Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us and to direct our steps, if our focus is on him, not on ourselves, if it's on him and not on the necessarily on the task at hand, he is going to see to it that he connects all the dots for us. All right? He's going to take care and put us in contact with the right people at the right time, whenever they're ready. And then he's going to give us the things to say whenever that time happens. See, we think that we're the ones that's got to figure it all out. That we've got to make it happen. That we've got to, to uh, navigate all of these things. And God says, if you'll just follow me, if you'll allow me to direct your steps, I'll see to it that you get where you need to be 
to accomplish what I desire you to do. And this is clearly illustrated here by this man. And it is amazing to me how there are so many different uh, factors involved in this. And it just goes together seamlessly. God just puts all the pieces together. Why? Because Philip was focused on the Lord, was obedient to him, was willing, was guided by his spirit, and God put him one step at a time. Put him right in contact with the right people at the right time, had their hearts prepared. And even in our witnessing and in our trying to tell people about the Lord, I've heard it said that you can't share the gospel with the wrong person. And I believe that's true enough. But here's the thing. It's not that we go out and every person that we meet, we need to make sure that we share the gospel with. But if we would be in tune with the Lord and allow him to guide our conversations and our interactions, he could lead us to the people who he wants to share the gospel with. With the ones that he has prepared, he can open the doors, he can kick them wide open, he can drop it in our laps, right? But what does it take? It takes us to be willing. It takes us to be trusting him, right? And seeking after him. If we're in tune with him, he can guide every aspect of our lives. Our service for him, our guiding, raising our families, our time and our jobs and our work. He can put everything into place, make the connections where they need to be if we are first connected to him, right? And so anyway, um, we have the Ethiopian baptized on his way. History tells us that there was existence of uh, Christians in Ethiopia extremely early, not long after Christ. I wonder where they came from. From this man, right? And so God calls the church to expand through Philip down into Ethiopia with this eunuch, many Christians down there, right? By the way, the apostles didn't come and lay hands on them. They received the Holy Spirit immediately, right? But something else interesting for me, and this will be my last thing, we'll close is if we look at chapters uh, 8, 9, and 10 of the book of Acts, which we'll be doing over the next couple of weeks, in chapter 8, you have an Ethiopian, a descendant of Ham, right? The African race would be the, the descendants of Ham. In chapter number 9, you have Paul. He would have been out of Asia. He was the uh, descendant of Shem. And then in chapter 10, we have the centurion, a European descendant of Japheth. That covers all the descendants of uh, all the sons of Noah, the people that would populate the entire world, right? And so these three representatives that we have in chapters 8, 9, and 10 are representative of the gospel going to all of the world, telling us that God holds no difference between the Jew and the Gentile, between the African, the Asian, the European, right? That salvation is for whosoever will. That he really meant it whenever he said that he so loved the world. That he desired that all the world be saved. He meant it. And so we see here in this transitional book of Acts, the gospel going from the Jews to the world. Not because of who they are or what they did, but because of how God was orchestrating and how God was working 
in them, through them, and sometimes in spite of them, right? And so in all of this, we see God working miraculously to extend his grace and his mercy to every corner of the globe, right? So any questions, any comments on what we've looked at today? Or arguments, I'll take those too. Just a side note, would you say was he was reading the Septuagint or the Greek Old Testament translation of the Old Testament? Most likely. Yeah, you find actually the Septuagint is quoted quite frequently in the Gospels, even by Jesus. And so it, Septuagint was a a Greek translation, not even a good Greek translation by that time, but they still quoted it. That also explains why there's a pretty good difference if you go over to Isaiah 53, read verses 8 and 9, compare it with what's quoted in Acts chapter number 8. There's a difference in wording. It's because you have translated from Hebrew to Greek to English. So it's going to change multiple translation, translations. It's going to change word orders and syntax and all kinds of stuff. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll take a, a short break and then we'll uh, gather for our second service. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings and we thank you for the day that you've given us, Lord, for everyone who's gathered out here today, Lord, and for the interactions that we've had, Lord. We just pray, ask you that you would uh, continue to, to meet and guide us here today, Lord. I just pray that you would use your word and, and draw us closer to you, Lord. I pray that you do a work in the hearts of each person here and help us, Lord, to be like... Uh, Philip and, and looking to you to guide and to direct and to, to lead us in all of these things, Lord, trusting you and being obedient to you. Lord, for you know what you're doing. Oftentimes we're clueless, but you know what you're doing. And thank you so much for all you do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.